The following sermon from Sunday, July 7th, 2019 by Benny Phillips is titled Living Life Backwards from the series Memento Mori, The Message of Ecclesiastes. Well, in case, um, in case you were unaware of this fact, this is the... <clears throat> 50th anniversary of Woodstock. Just wanted you to know that. Just thought that'd be important to you. The 50th anniversary of Woodstock. The 50th anniversary of what was referred to as the Summer of Love. Now, the problem is none of us really know what they meant by Summer of Love or we're afraid to ask. So, we thought we would redeem the summer of love with the summer of wisdom. So, our summer series, and what a way to start our summer series, by sweating. What a great way to start our summer series. With the summer of wisdom. Now, like I mentioned last week, I'm going to be doing a series of messages from the book of Ecclesiastes. Uh, Jesse and Joey will be speaking from other books of wisdom, Psalms, Proverbs, Song of Solomon. Uh, I'm not sure exactly uh, where they're going to uh, be pulling from, but, but I'm going to be doing, the four messages that I'm going to be doing are, are from the book of Ecclesiastes, and it's actually the start of a series, the book of Ecclesiastes, um, that uh, now you can go to the graphic with, the, with my notes on it. So... Um, <clears throat> eventually. Now, I don't know how many of you saw the movie, What About Bob? <clears throat> it was a um, very funny movie. One of my favorite scenes in the movie is <clears throat> Bob, played by Bill Murray, who is a 40-year-old adolescent in, uh, in, in mentality in, in the movie following his therapy, therapist all around uh, and ends up on vacation with his therapist. The therapist has a son named Sigmund. Bob and Sigmund are in, the, in Sigmund's room trying to go to bed because the therapist is going to be on uh, Good Morning America the next morning and he needs his sleep. So they're in there and they're acting like two adolescents. It's the favorite part of the movie. Sigmund, who's 12 years old, is kind of sitting there staring. And Bob looks at him and says, what's wrong? And he stares right into the camera and he says, we're going to die. We're all going to die. And Bob has his pillow and grabs it and pushes it in his face acting all scared. Well, 10 minutes later, they're jumping on the bed and having a great time. But the reason why that's my favorite point in the movie is because here is this 11-year-old, 12-year-old in a, what makes the scene funny is that what 12-year-old is going to be worrying 
obsessing over the fact that he's going to die? Well, I found the answer to that question. One who has read the book of Ecclesiastes. The title of this series is Memento Mori. That's Latin for remember you will die. That is a medieval Christian philosophy and reflection on mortality, especially considering the vanity of this earthly life, the, the, the transient nature of all things and all pursuits. And it, it does carry the idea of judgment. Remember, Luther said that there's really only two days on my calendar. Today, this day, and that day. This day and that day. And, and what Luther was talking about was that the only thing I need to be reminded of is that there's going to be that day, the day of judgment. Well, the, the preacher, who th that's who the writer of Ecclesiastes is called, he calls himself the preacher, he is talking about judgment, for sure. But he's also thinking mo more than judgment. He is talking about living life out of an awareness that you are going to die. We're all going to die. And that reality should inform and help us to live. But the preacher knows that for most people, we spend our lives trying to deny that reality and trying to pretend that it doesn't happen or that it's way away. And so we live lives, frantic lives, trying to make things happen and, and do things in such a way that it helps us to forget that we're all going to die. And what happens, and here's the big idea of Ecclesiastes, is that we get so fixated on denying death that we forget that there is a journey that we are on and that how we walk that journey is what God is interested in. Not the destination, because the destination is the same for all of us, and that is death. Death is the great equalizer in the book of Ecclesiastes. Listen, this is a tough book. And to preach from this book is going to cause us to ponder all kinds of contradictions and make us wonder, does the preacher actually believe in God? Well, he does. And sometimes the contradictions are like right within the same verse in Ecclesiastes. I mean, it, it, there, there's this, this idea that we don't know how to live with complexity. We don't know how to live with mystery, with things going poorly, badly. 
We're encouraged to have joy. But if there's no resurrection, what do we find our joy in? If there's no, no afterlife to look forward, what will the preacher makes us deal with that reality that we can't just live with this notion of some pie in the sky that we're going to have this wonderful afterlife, which we are. We have to live with an awareness that we face life in light of the fact that life is mean, it's difficult, it's challenging, and we're all going to die. I was drawn into this book by a verse in chapter 7. And if, if you don't, those of you who might be new to us, if you don't understand why this grabbed my attention, I'll be explaining it when I get there. But for, for those of you who do know some of the things that I've whined about and complained about over the years, verse 10 says, <clears throat> Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Listen. When you can't jump anymore for your jump shot. When you cannot cut the grass without wondering if you're having cardiac arrest. If you are walking through a part of your life where all of the things that you thought were going to happen aren't, aren't happening, never happened, or did happen, and now they're gone, you understand why that verse bothers me. Because it says, that's not of wisdom to ask that question. Well, then what question should I be asking? Ah, that's where Ecclesiastes comes in. The book drew me in. And it really helped me. So, let me read the prologue to this, and then we're going to jump into just a few things to start off with. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. That does not mean that it's Solomon, but I'll explain that as we go. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises, the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said? See, this is new. It has been already in the ages before. There is no remembrance of former 
things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. Lord, I pray that you would help us this morning. Help us as we dig into this book and learn its life lessons well. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. title of today's message is Life Lived Backwards. Now, this is an idea I got from one of the commentaries written by David Gibson. And it's a, it's a common sense look. Ecclesiastes is a common sense look at the complicated complexity of life. The, the life when it's mean and when it's brutal. Life when it's joyful, when it's, when it's full of, of, of success. And how to navigate those waters in a common sense way and not be pulled in wrong directions and pulled away from that which is most important. David Gibson, in that book I was mentioning, makes this comment. He says, left to our own devices, we tend to live life forward. One day follows another, and weeks turn into months, and months turn into years. And We do not know the future, but we plan and hope and dream of where we will be and what we would like to be doing. We live forward. Ecclesiastes teaches us to live backward. It encourages us to take the one thing in the future that is certain, our death, and work backward from that point into all the details and decisions and heartaches of our lives and think about them from the perspective of the end. It is the destination that makes sense of the journey. And it was that sentence that caught me. It is the, the, the destination that makes sense of the journey and helps us, by the way, enjoy the journey. But getting that perspective from the end, you know how GPSs work, right? You, you, you put, the, put the destination into the GPS. And so, so the GPS has your destination. The GPS knows where you're going, even when you don't. And so as you're driving, you're not as worried about, all right, when's that next turn? Because you know the GPS is going to tell you. And you know what? If you miss that turn, the GPS says, recalculating. Or if you have a fancy one, says, moron, turn around. But that reality that the GPS sees all, knows where you are, and knows how to get you there even when you mess up, Our destination is death. We're going to die. We're all going to die. But if we're missing turns, we're going to get to our destination. We're all going to get to the destination. We're all going to get right there. Now, when you start thinking about this, and it might not even be making any sense to you right now. But if you start thinking about this, because I've been pondering it for a while. And I think, you know, I look at Ge- even Genesis 3. The Bible, from the very beginning, in Genesis, where we are, we, we see our propensity to want to know the beginning from the end, 
when we see our propensity to want to be like God, that the Bible frames our entire existence in that reality that we want to deny the reality that we don't know it all and can't know it all. And it teaches us how to live. It exposes our attitudes. My main obstacle to living well in this world has been my constant refusal to accept my mortality and how finite I am. Now, it gets easier the older you get. But I, when, when I don't live well, it's because I'm living in denial of that reality. And as I read this book, I got more and more uncomfortable at the things that the preacher mocked me for. Because he mocks, okay? He is irritating. He mocks us. He exposed attitudes and perspective that I didn't even think were problematic, that I didn't see anything wrong with. He, he, at one point, he takes aim at one of my favorite things, which is the pursuit of knowledge. I love knowing things. I love trivial pursuits. I love thinking about things just so that I can spout off that I know these things. He says... You're a fool. Not because you get knowledge. That's great. That's great that you become wise or that you become knowledgeable. Let me separate those two. That you become knowledgeable. Because the more knowledgeable you become, chances are you can get some wisdom out of that and live properly. But of course, there's also the problem that you can just be pursuing knowledge for knowledge's sake and you get all puffed up and proud. Because knowledge is not the answer. The preacher agrees with Proverbs that wisdom is better than folly. But wisdom, no matter how much we give, cannot give us a comprehensive account of reality and provide me with my desire, which is the ability to control that reality. Now, what the prologue is doing is giving us a glimpse of what we're going to see in the rest of the book of Proverbs. He's talking about the brevity of life, that whole passive vanity of vanities. Vanity uh, that a lot of uh, commentators call uh, translated meaninglessness, that kind of thing. The, the reality is that it, it's, it's the same word that's used in other passages for breeze or breath. It's the idea of the breath of life, the brevity of life. Psalm 39, 5, you have made my days a mere hand breath. The span of my years is nothing before you. Each man's life is but a breath. That's the word that's used there for vanity. Man is like a breath, that same word. His days are like a fleeting shadow, Psalm 144. Charm is deceptive and beauty is fleeting. That's that word. Beauty is fleeting, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. The idea that 
all things here on this earth are insubstantial. They are fleeting, and it is vain to pursue them. It's Context is actually most often used in that word meaning, uh, I mean that word, in Psalms. And, and the idea that things are passing away, that they're making no permanent impact or impression on reality. They are futile. That mocks my sense of wanting to leave a mark on this world. What he is saying, what the preacher is saying is, you want to leave a legacy? To quote the song, you want to leave a legacy? The only legacy that you're going to be able to leave is the legacy of what Christ has done for you. The preacher doesn't even start talking that way until way later because he wants us to understand how we pursue this fleeting world, how we deny the complexity of this world. When he says, what does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? The implied answer to that Nothing. What does a man gain? The word gain there is the idea of surplus. It's the idea of, of, of uh, profit. How much you earn, what, you know, that kind of thing. I, how, how does a man gain? What does man gain by all his toil? So, as that jab comes in and the short answer being nothing, he then begins to follow that with some explanation of what he means, a little bit of just poetic communication of what he's driving at. What will my surplus be? Now, we could all just listen to the ballad of John and Yoko and, and get a kind of a... a, a a witty version of that is as John sings, oh gosh, I'm, that's not going to come to my mind. Um, <clears throat> oh, sorry. I know. Uh, um, Saving up your money for a rainy day. Giving all your clothes to charity. Last night the wife said, oh boy, when you're dead, you won't take nothing with you but your soul. That's Ecclesiastes. That's straight out of the book of Ecclesiastes, and Lennon had no idea. Listen, we get this everywhere from the culture. The problem with the Lion King is what Mufasa didn't tell us, not what he told us. Mufasa told us exactly what verses 4 through 7 tell us. I'm not going to sing this, although I'm tempted. From the day we arrived on the... No, no. From the day we arrive on the planet, 
and blinking step into the sun. There's more to be seen than can ever be seen, more to do than can ever be done. There's far too, too much to inhere, more to find than ever be found. I typed that wrong. There's far too much. Yes, thank you. More to find than can ever be found. But the sun rolling high through the sapphire sky keeps great and small on the endless round in the circle of life. Listen, there is an awe about creation in that song and in in, in what's being communicated there. Creation, a wonderful gift to be cared for and to be glad in. And, And no doubt about it, Lion King is a religious worldview. There's a beauty and a harmony to what's being preached there. There's a beauty and a harmony to what's being spoken here in this poem. Generation goes, generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises, the sun goes down. And even as as, the words that he was saying, all streams run into the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they will flow again. I mean, there is a, a, a... a sense that creation is a marvel for us, that we are to be glad in, that we are to rejoice in, and there's a way to love that and to see it as a gift. But the problem, the preacher says, is that if that's how we live our lives, you need to recognize you will never get enough. The sun rises and says, it, it chases its tail. It's just going round and round and round. The, the, the streams flow into the ocean. They never get full. And it happens again tomorrow. And it happens again the next day. A generation comes and a generation goes and all that's left is the next generation. There's this, yes, there's this circle of life. And you know what the problem is? All things, verse 8, are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with the seeing, nor the ear filled with the hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. There's nothing new under the sun. We don't like the repetitive nature, the mundane nature of our lives. We feel like Progress is what we're up to. Now listen. In the journey, we make progress. In the journey, we are being changed by the grace of God and the power of the Spirit. We are being sanctified. We are being changed into His image. But we won't fully change into His image until we get where we're going. Death. We want to get somewhere. We want to make progress. We want our lives to mean something. We want there to be meaning. Even technology. We used to believe there, there was a day when we believed that technology was going to be the answer to everything. And when he says there's nothing new under the sun, he doesn't, he's not saying there's no new inventions. There's no new things that come. But you know what? It's the next new thing. And we've gotten to the point where we actually believe that and realize that. 
we stand in line waiting for the next new thing to come out. We've got to have the next new thing. Why? Because it sets us free and sanctifies us? No, because it's the next new thing. And we've got to have the next new thing because it may not save us, but it'll make our lives better. And listen, thank the Lord for the progress that gave us air conditioning. I'm so grateful. But we don't gain from our toil in the sense that he's talking about because the world will go on unaware of what we have done. And besides, we're going to die and be forgotten. If we won't live long enough to make a lasting impression, how then should we live? If I can't find meaning in my legacy, well then do I just forget about having a legacy and just live my life the way I want to? Eh, preacher has some things to say to us about that as well. But he's going to answer that question bit by bit. Here he's making his very first point, and this is it. Accepting death is the first step in learning to live. If we try to gain from this life in whatever way that looks like, success, job, reputation, whatever, the stark reality is that nothing changes just because we wish it to or that we get some promotion. No. Fundamentally, we are the same as the generation before us, as the generation before that. If there's anything that we learn from Scripture, going all the way back to Adam, we just go back to Adam and we see nothing has fundamentally changed. We are still sinners in need of redemption. We are still living lives that either honor God or they don't. Now you say, well, why didn't you just say that at the beginning? Because what I found just in my study so far is that this teaches me about the journey and the joy of the story that God is writing in our lives. Band, if you want to come on up. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new, it's been already? We, we can't really live until we are prepared to die, until we are ready to face these realities. Accepting death is that first step. Listen, the preacher is, is touching on some very important biblical themes about the brevity of life, the transient nature of who we are. I mean... In Matthew chapter 6, Jesus helps us with this. Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is saying, Therefore I tell you, 
Do not be anxious about your life. What you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body for what you will put on, is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life. And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown in the oven, will he not clothe you? Jesus is encouraging us to live life backward. To recognize that it's death that's going to define this journey. The brevity and the elusive nature of our lives are an important part of what it means for us to live well. Our story is not about us being a hero, saving the world that is going to forget us anyway. It is to be reckoned with. This life is to be reckoned with rather than owned or manipulated. It is about recognizing that the call of God in our lives is to recognize that what He has done for us is what is going to get us through. It's the work of the cross that lifts the curse of death from us. Not removes death and its denial from us. No, it, it takes death and it says, death, where's your sting? Death is going to come. We're all going to die. Sigmund was right. We're all going to die. But it takes that sting and says, life is not about gain in this world. It's about gain in that world. And living our lives, as Paul said, for me to live is Christ. For me to die is gain. To hold him at the center of our lives, to trust him, to follow him, to imitate him. If there's any gain at all in this life, it's dying daily to the plans and the purposes of God. It's dying daily to ourselves, not living for ourselves, but preparing ourselves for that day when we literally will die. And it's only through Christ that there's any sense of newness that is worth speaking about. Now, does a preacher ever get there? Yes, he will. He certainly will. But what we're going to learn from him is how to live under the sun in the midst of this mean, difficult life in which we suffer.